Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we interview successful entrepreneurs and bring you business and personal growth tips. Today, we have the godfather of the term growth hacker, Sean Ellis, who used to work for Dropbox, Zobni, and he is now the CEO of Qualaroo. Sean, how are we doing today? I'm good. How are you doing, Eric? Good, good. Thanks for joining us. So, uh, yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background first? Uh, sure. So, I... Uh... I spent about 10 years sort of in obscurity um, growing companies that, uh, two, two companies that had started out of Eastern Europe actually, and uh, one was a company called Uproar.com, which was a game company in the late 90s and actually became the biggest game company in the world. But uh, again, like I think a lot of times that the marketer behind some companies is sort of just, just heads down behind the scenes and then... Same group of guys, uh, after we sold that company to Vivendi Universal, we ended up starting Logni Inn in, in Budapest, Hungary again. And uh, both companies, the headquarters eventually moved to, to the U.S. But um, So I did that. And then coming off of it, I realized that I really liked the early stage part of it and that a lot of the long-term growth was based on stuff we figured out in the early days. So I also realized that it had been five years since I'd done the early stage stuff. So if that's the important thing, and I hadn't had a lot of practice, I should probably get into spending a few more cycles in that area. So then I just I defined my marketing roles as six-month roles. And the first one I did was Zobni, then Dropbox. Uh, I actually ended up splitting. I did two at a time. So I did Dropbox and Eventbrite at the same time. And, uh, and then Lookout and uh, Social Casts the next two and just kind of kept going down and just doing these but, but basically trying to trying to be super systematic about the process of bringing these companies to market and try to think about sort of repeatable tools and processes and just like what matters and when does it matter and what order do I do it and then how do I get really good at each of the subcomponents and uh, so I did that for, for a few years and then then tried to apply that knowledge to starting my own company, and uh, and so I've been been doing startups now, like as a CEO for for about three three and a half years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Obviously, very extensive background. And so you you mentioned repeatable processes. So what are I mean, you've worked with all these companies before. What are some kind of uh, repeatable processes that you that that have like held been like evergreen? I guess. Yeah. So so. Um, I think one thing to sort of think about first of all is is kind of like even before the process is the goal. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, the goal was not to fail. And so, um, which I mean, maybe maybe succeed should be a better goal. But like I, I actually started each one with uh, something my CTO now called it uh, a premortem, and essentially trying to figure out if I fail, why am I going to fail? And then I thought, like, if I'm really good at connecting with customers and they don't give a crap about the product because the product sucks, then it doesn't matter. So, you know, today we call it product market fit, but, I, you know, I just sort of, the, the concept of that was something that I just realized, like, I could be really good at marketing and it wouldn't matter um, if, if the product is something people don't need. Mm-hmm. And I also thought about, like, if the, if the onboarding is awful, then it doesn't matter externally. Um, how effective you are at connecting people if they can't kind of get their head around it and, and use it then then it doesn't matter so for me the process was first to validate product market fit mm-hmm. and that was something that um, you know I don't, I don't think anybody I, I think product market fit to a large degree is luck I mean there's definitely there's some things that you can do 
to validate ahead of time if the problem you're solving actually exists. There's some things that you can do that, that can stack the odds for product market fit. But so, um, but I, I knew that as a marketer, there wasn't a whole lot I could do to help with product market fit. So what I was trying to do is find pre-growth companies, but companies who had a little seed of users who were passionate about the solution. So that, that would be sort of the process one was, was to find that. Mm-hmm. And then once I had that, then, then the sort of formulaic way of doing it was to really tap in to understand what is the kernel of value that has been created mm-hmm. and, and how, do I, how do I do the onboarding to get people from sort of point A of whatever context that they're in right now to point B of realizing the kernel of that value, actually coming in and having that, that experience that they say, wow, this is, this is something I can't live without. And so, um, and a lot of times, like if you try to go direct and you try to just promote, man, this experience is great, it's, um, it's a little removed from the context that people are in. So, so there's a bit of an art of really understanding the context before they've had the product. So are they switching from another product? In which case, a lot of your messaging is just around why it's better or are they, are they evergreen? Are they just switching from dealing with the problem that this is a solution to and not even realizing or caring that there's, there's a solution out there? And, and sort of understanding that context and then how you build the hooks to drive interest and momentum toward your solution, is, is a, a, that was a big part of the process. And I had sort of a, a bunch of different systematic ways. I'm happy to go into details on sort of how I, how I connected those dots and and that ultimately, I, mean, I also thought a lot about business models. Mm-hmm. So like if a uh, you know, business model really needs to be a function of what you think your growth engine is going to be. If, if you're going to grow virally, you can have a pretty low revenue per user. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you can grow virally and have a high revenue per user, that's better. So there's no reason, <laughs> no reason to like bring the price down but, um, or the, the, the revenue per user down. But if you're going to try to uh, arbitrage growth by – by buying AdWords or, or display ads or something, then you, then you have to have a higher price per user. So that's, that's the other thing is that, and then you have to, it, I mean, essentially that's kind of a puzzle where you have to make sure that the pieces fit together. And if, uh, if, the, if, if the only thing that's going to support the channel that you think is going to work is a high price, but the price sensitivity for the product is, is um, they, you know, they're really price sensitive. And if you raise the price, the demand drops to nothing, then, start over, rethink, like, okay, that channel's actually not viable. I have to, I have to think about how do, how, do I, how do I grow virally or how do I grow through uh, integrations or whatever, whatever it might be. But something, so, so business model is actually a, an important part of, of what the growth engine is as well. Got it. Cool. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of processes that are tied to growth. Uh, so you mentioned product market fit. I know you've talked about this in blog posts before and interviews as well. So can you tell our audience kind of how you measure product market fit? I guess this can kind of go to Kuala Root too. Yeah. So, um, so for me, what I, one of the things that, um, you, you know, so for me, like a lot of the success that I had in the early companies was, was luck. And I think that the big part of that luck was the product market fit piece. But what it turned out was that when you, when you do back-to-back IPOs and six months later, you're the first guy at Dropbox, not surprisingly, there's going to be a lot of people you know, the first marketing guy at Dropbox, and I, there's going to be a lot of people asking you to come work with their companies. And so for me, I needed an efficient way to sort of process that deal flow and, and pick pick which one I could actually, which one had the most potential. Good problem to have. So, 
What's that? Yeah, yeah it's a great yeah. <laughs> Exactly. But, um, you know, and I couldn't like go in and study the user base and do all these things because I was super inefficient. So and the other thing, that the, the, the other little angle with this is that um, when you tell an entrepreneur that you don't believe in their vision and you don't want to work with them, you, you really piss them off. So, um, you know, even if they, even if they don't maybe act angry, they're at least hurt on the inside. And so what I, I took it down to a single survey question that I basically, I had them run it. I published it on survey.io and basically just said, if you want me to work with you, go ahead and run this free survey that I set up. I, I worked with Kissmetrics to create the tool and so they could just, they could just basically send someone there and then share the results with me. And um, I was looking for the percentage of people who said that they would be very disappointed if they could no longer use the product. Mm -hmm. So if, um, if they said they'd be somewhat disappointed, or if they said that they wouldn't be disappointed, or they said they don't use it anymore, like I, I kind of took, took that as those people don't matter. Mm -hmm. But how many people actually say they'd be very disappointed if the product disappeared? Um, if that signal was strong enough, then then I knew I had a good chance of working with them. So what kind of going back to, you know, how would I say yes or no in working with a company? If if the signal wasn't strong enough, I would say I don't want you to waste your money on me right now. It's it's too early for growth, which was actually the right message for them. Mm -hmm. But that's a lot better than saying I think I think you're going to fail, and I don't want to work with you. Like that, you know, that would be the interpretation otherwise. So yeah. so like. Hey, it's a little early to work with me. Why don't you go back? Keep iterating. Keep those costs down. Keep understanding customer needs and try to try to get that product market fit just right. Mm -hmm. And then, um, but so once I looked at enough of those numbers, and I, I had run that question against the Zodney user base and against the Dropbox user base and and Eventbrite, look at kind of over time. And then there was companies I didn't work with, and I, I could start to see a pattern that um, when they were. When that user base was around 40% of, of active users saying that they would be very disappointed without the product, mm -hmm. then, then those companies tended to do pretty well. And when they, um, whether I worked with them or not, mm -hmm. and then if they were like way below that, those companies tend, tended to, to flail. And so, um, so then, then I could basically say, as soon as you get that number to 40%, let's talk. And, and until you get that number to 40%, Let's not talk. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I would basically say I, I don't think I can help you get to that forty percent. Like that's that's sort of an entrepreneur's risk. That's not a marketer's risk. That's 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 why that's why the founder gets the big bucks because they yeah. they they're trying to create a solution to a problem that really matters. And if they if they nail that, that's 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 the upside. You know, marketer doesn't get very much and shouldn't shouldn't expose themselves to that risk. <laughs> Got it. So the takeaway here I think for the audience is once you're at the 40% number it's time to it's time for growth, right? Um, mm -hmm. interesting thing like so when I did this I actually ran this this question um, when I was at Treehouse and it was way above um, way above 40%. So the product market fit was there, but we had a pretty big uh, we had a churn issue which was pretty massive um, at the time. So how would you deal with that? I mean, would you, if you saw a company that had really good product market fit, but really high churn at the, like what, what would be your reaction to that? How would you deal with it? It really, it depends on the product. I mean, so the 40% the, the is just a proxy that you still have to think through every, you know, the business still might not be viable if no one's willing to pay for that solution or it's 40% if it's free. As soon as you put a price on it, it drops to zero, you know, like uh, so, and, and, and there's certain categories like 
how disappointed would you be if you could never see Forrest Gump again? Like, you know, how disappointed would you be if you hadn't seen it? Like, I mean, certain categories are a little harder to answer there. Or how how disappointed would you be if you couldn't use the dating site where you met your wife? <laughs> um, I, I, I hope that I won't be, you know, like that, that kind of thing. So, so I mean, I think it, you still have to, to kind of look category by category. Mm -hmm. And in, in, a, in the case of churn, that there's certain – there's certain use cases in businesses that are uh, – that it's a project-based need and, and churn is going to be high. And that doesn't mean that you can't build a good business there. It's just like one, it may not be a SaaS business. It may be something that you that you sell on licensing. Um, I can tell you, interestingly, churn is something that we've struggled with a lot at Qualaroo. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, a little bit of background on Qualaroo is that, that it's – it's primarily used by people who are doing conversion rate optimization so that they, they can target questions to specific groups of people on the website at specific stages to understand why or why not they're, they're doing something mm -hmm. and issues they're having and why they're there. And, and then you use that information to plug it into your A-B testing. Mm -hmm. And so we had this churn problem where we started like thinking, okay, I need to, I need to add things that are going to make people want to keep using this long term but it's it's actually been very recently that we realized our churn problem had nothing to do with the product and had a lot to do with the market that we were targeting mm -hmm. that there's there's this big vibrant market of full-time conversion rate optimization people mm -hmm. and they don't treat it as a project they treat it as a process they treat it as an ongoing process of improving their website's ability to meet business objectives mm -hmm. And then there's people like how I've been in the past where you're a full stack marketer. You're doing all of these things. You don't have the time or discipline to consistently manage and, and, and do conversion rate optimization at the level where it's going to kind of reach that optimal level. Mm -hmm. And after a while, you're going to run out of ideas for questions to ask. You're going to, because, because it's sort of this side thing that you're doing and that group, that group's going to treat it as a project, mm -hmm. but there's this whole other group that just by changing the targeting, we we can we can solve our churn issue overnight by just changing the targeting. So I, I mean, it's kind of a uh, long answer to that question that you asked, but hopefully it, it kind of gives the context. Which is the case of kind of anytime you're talking about startups, it depends. Yeah. yeah. No, totally. No, and I think that's a really good answer there. And so you actually bring up the concept of um, full stack marketer. So. Let's um, let's define what a full stack marketer is first, and then let's let's define what a growth hacker is, and let's let's kind of see what the difference is, I guess. Okay, and you know, to me, I, I actually wasn't even that familiar with the term full stack marketer until pretty recently, and yeah. um, but I like it. I mean, it's it's something that in companies that I have been in early, and then I'll go back to growth hacker in a minute. But yeah. um, in companies that I've been in early, uh, you know, there's certain companies that have two people in them. You know, it might be might be a CEO and a CTO that are the two founders of the company. And that means that they're dividing, you know, usually the CTO in that case would be, or the CEO would, might be doing marketing and financing and kind of all the, all the kind of outreach stuff. And the CTO would be deeper in the code, mm -hmm. but you add a third person and a fourth person and a fifth person. And suddenly, suddenly everybody starts to specialize a little bit more and gets, gets a little bit, you know, you're taking responsibilities off people's plates. And I've seen that in companies where, you know, I'm one of the first 10 employees and then it, then it 
then we have hundreds of employees, everyone's scope of responsibilities goes down. So to me, full stack marketer is something that um, an early stage company can't afford to have five marketers. And so you need someone who can kind of do it all, who has, who has enough, uh, enough knowledge of each of the pieces that they, that they can do, that they understand SEO and SEM and content marketing, but they also understand conversion rate optimization. They also understand analytics and how to really spot opportunities in the data and, and issues in the data. They, you know, kind of each, each of these areas, um, and there's, there's a lot of people that are like that. I think startup, startup marketers tend to be like that just out of necessity. They have to. And so that's how I would kind of define a full stack marketer. It's just somebody who, who really has a deep understanding of kind of each, each of the elements of marketing. Mm -hmm. Um, a growth hacker is something that uh, is actually more narrowly focused than that full stack marketer. Okay. The, the growth hacker, I mean, so a lot of things that I listed for the full stack marketer are going to be things that would apply directly to a growth hacker. But um, what if you've ever picked up a marketing textbook, you'll you'll find that they're about this thick, and there's yeah, there's a gazillion things in there, and about. Uh, you know, maybe a quarter of it or, or less than that, you can directly tie to its impact on growth and, and correlate its impact on growth. Mm -hmm. Well, at the same time, so at the same time, you, you have a lot of things that wouldn't show up in there. I mean, you kind of like marketers talk about the four P's. So product is one of the four P's, mm -hmm. but, but there's a lot of things that uh, different, different kind of groups that are typically outside of the marketing department actually can do to impact growth, and and so there's you know that that ultimately that ultimately marketing and growth are not necessarily synonymous. Marketing is broader than growth, and that growth actually bleeds into some of these other departments. So to me, a growth hacker is just someone that again, it's that early stage company that you out of necessity you you have somebody who's just focused on every single activity that they can be doing has to be measured against its potential impact on growth. Every, everything that they look at is, is looked at through the lens of how can I use this to drive more growth in the business? And, um, and that, to me, is what a growth hacker is. So a lot of times people tie it more to, well, isn't a growth hacker somebody who's got an engineering background? Mm -hmm. uh, right. I think that, uh, that the engineering piece is is such a powerful piece of the toolkit for a growth hacker that people naturally assume it's a requirement for the growth hacker. So that's the other thing is sort of a, a resource to growth ratio. Like if you, if you can drive a ton of growth with very few resources, that's, that's like the ultimate success for a growth hacker. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately an engineering driven solution is one where your marginal cost approach is zero once you once you've implemented say if you had a widget a, a widget process where you like like take YouTube like once once you've kind of built that viral viral embeddable widget thing out there mm -hmm. and there's not really a big incremental cost every time someone embeds another yeah. YouTube video and they're all linking back and and so that versus if they tried to buy space on each of those ads, mm -hmm. um, is it just just a completely different formula for for growth and one where where there's very little. Co I mean, uh, obviously there's there's we know that that YouTube was spending 
a lot of money before they got acquired. They like yeah. a million dollars a day or something in in just bandwidth costs. But that was not so much a marketing cost as it was a um, having a whole bunch of people using the product. Mm-hmm. There was on those sites or, or or locally. But so so that's where I think that the engineering piece comes in is that um, the cycles are faster if you can prototype things. But I'm not an engineer by background, and um, I, uh, some of the best things that I done are are solutions that required me to work closely with an engineering group right but um but so i don't think it's a requirement i think that ultimately a growth hacker is a growth hacker if they look at everything through that lens and that that they're they're an aspiring growth hacker if they look at everything through that lens and they're Mm -hmm. a growth hacker if they have a track record of being able to effectively drive growth yeah i I definitely agree with that because my engineering's not in in i mean my background's not in engineering and you know I think there's one thing I discussed with like the the ex CMO of Linda. He's like, you know, if you're an engineer, like on the marketing side, there's there are some things that you don't you just don't know what you don't know, right? So the, I think there is value in you know having a marketer work with an engineer because then you can kind of combine forces. There's but there's the resource issue too. Um, obviously, some engineers that are really good at marketing probably going to be a founder um, sometime. Not not going to be an employee for very long, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you there. So um, why don't we talk about, um, so you know, my friend actually told me to ask, ask me to ask you this question, but what about white hat tactics versus black hat tactics? Are growth hackers open to testing everything or only all white hat stuff? I mean, I think it really depends on the person, obviously, but my, I tend to be really focused on, on sustainable growth. So, I mean, to me, to me, like the ultimate, the ultimate example of a of, of an effective growth company is Dropbox, mm-hmm. um, and being able to see, I would say Dropbox is the most white hat organization that I've ever been associated with. Like mm-hmm. they they would not promote their paid product without mentioning they have a free product because they just didn't think it was fair to hide that information, even though that might be one way to have a sustainable growth channel. Like they they. Like every touch point I've ever seen with companies or with, with their customers is is the most white hat touch that you, you could possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, the rumor is that their their latest value is like eight billion dollars now and they've essentially spent nothing on, on marketing along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, like to me that that's a huge argument for white hat. Um, I think that the companies that are spammy. So I, I think like one of the fastest ways to grow would be would be building an invite system before someone's tried the product. And the reason that that works so well is that you have a funnel and that every step toward actually getting into your product, you lose half the people, you know, who would be going to the next step. So if you if you try to drive invites at the final step in the funnel, you're driving invites against a very small number of people. But if you try to drive them at the top of the funnel, you're driving against a very big number of people. And so just naturally, that's going to be, that's going to probably work better. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly if, if you can uh, accidentally have them click on send this invite to all your, all your people in your address book because it's so close, yeah because it's so close to the download button or whatever the whatever yeah. the, the, the thing may be and p- people do that my 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 mom I I actually uh, one company that that delivered a ton of utility to me 
um, it was a few years ago, so they've probably cleaned up cleaned up their act. But but TripIt, I use it now still. I love TripIt. I pay for TripIt. But yeah, but I I told my mom she should use TripIt because she had this this trip around South America and uh, and she was talking about I got all these different. Uh, agenda items and other stuff that's out there and it's kind of a pain and I was like, oh, you just got to use this thing, trip it. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, my mom goes to install it and spams her entire address book <laughs> with, I'm out of town, ta- I mean, in her mind, yeah. I'm out of town and my house is going to be empty from these days to these days. Yeah. Please come rob me, you know? <laughs> wow. To her whole list. Yeah. I mean, and, and, wow. and, like for them to sort of add this social element to travel so that so that they know that that's a great growth engine for them. I was a great growth engine for them. I had true utility and told people about the value that I was getting. Mm-hmm. I never did again after that. I never, I never shared it with anyone because mm-hmm. they, they did that. But I think that's kind of a classic example of, you know, that, that, that a lot of the things that might seem smart in the short term aren't smart. So when I think about growth, I, I think about growth shouldn't be measured in number of people. Growth shouldn't be measured in number of downloads. Growth should be measured in units of utility delivered. Mm-hmm. And units of utility is based on delivering a must-have experience or, or an experience of value, whether it's must-have or not. Mm-hmm. And how many people do you deliver that valuable experience? And if you can drive engagement long-term and drive more value over time, that's even more growth, even, it's, even though it's growth in an individual. But to me, growth is about the, the delivery machine for that value. And as long as you're focused on who needs that value and how do I get it into their hands, mm-hmm. really are you going to gravitate toward black hat stuff? Yeah. And you, you bring up, I mean, that's a really good point because TripIt, I mean, they're giving you a good experience the whole time you're doing, you know, word of mouth marketing, right? Once they give you that bad experience, that black hat experience, bam, like it just no, no more word of mouth from, you know, from the, the customers that, that really enjoyed the product. And that's, I mean, you know, my background first started with SEO and, you know, I'm obviously, you know, willing to test black hat, willing to test white hat too. But you find that the biggest, you know, the long-term ROI solutions are the, the good experiences, right? That's why everything's gravitating towards content marketing now. So um, big takeaway here for the audience is, you know, you can test black hat, but it's not going to be sustainable. Um, so let's talk a little bit. And, and, and to me, I just I think that you've seen a number of companies like Branch Out or even or even uh, even like Zynga, yeah, that um, that really sort of mastered the the growth stuff, but but there wasn't a lot of substance underneath it. And it might be like in the case of Zynga, it might be that they maybe didn't black hat stuff. But I can tell you, like the games companies, I get invites that I know. I've been getting invites for some dragon game mm. on Facebook that I know the guy who that's associated with has no clue that that's coming up on my Facebook every day. And I finally went in there and just blocked them. But, um, like, you know, that's that's sort of a classic gaming tactic. And, that, you know, I mean, I, th- I, think, I think that when you see the, the, the crash of, of or, the, you know, the substantial decline of a company like Zynga and then, like, branch out everywhere to nowhere, like, I think, I think true utility was not being delivered in the process and that um, uh, they better just sell those companies quick because <laughs> they're probably not going to last. And, and to, me, to me, like, it, what's the point of doing this stuff if, if you're not 
if you're not kind of doing a net net value for the world of like right. you know, you're applying great growth skills for something that's crap like really I mean is that is you know maybe you can make some money in the short term but is that really is that fulfilling? It's not for me anyway. Yeah, no, it really, I mean, it really doesn't matter how great of a marketer you are because if it's a crappy product, it's just going to fall through the funnel anyway. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, growthhackers.com, what it is exactly and why did, why you decided to do it. So I, I did it, you know, I think well, like so many great kind of ideas are out there. It's because you wanted it, you know, like, like I think Dropbox is a function of like, Drew had a need, and he and he basically built something for his own need, and it turns out a whole bunch of other people had that need. Mm. For me, I, I, I started this conversation out. I, I spent my first ten years as a marketer in obscurity, mm. and I actually I actually tried to I tried to connect with other marketers. Like I, I even did like through Fast Company when I was based in Boston. I did, did this thing through Fast Company and. Tried to organize a group of marketers just so I could geek out with them about this stuff, and mm -hmm. it was me and a bunch of unemployed people sitting around and like, yeah, who haven't done like anything, but like somehow that that they're the only ones who had the time to show up, and so for me, and then at the same time, like I don't, I, I wasn't finding inspiration out there. You know, I was only kind of learn self learning with some stuff. I did find some inspiration on blogs, but it was pretty pretty scattered about, and so. For me, that was that was kind of the void that I felt like I was filling with GrowthHackers.com. Mm -hmm. um, was that was that just that need for community, that um, that place to be inspired and and just you know learn from other people. Particularly if you you know I I, I shared just to give you an example of it. I shared recently um, some things that I had tried with Twitter ads and and that it was kind of working for me. And then somebody said to me, you know what you should do? You should actually add images to those Twitter ads. Mm -hmm. I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll try to add images. That's a good idea. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then somebody shared a HubSpot article that talked about, don't just, when you write the tweet, don't just put the stuff before the link, put something after the link too. And mm -hmm. so I did all of this. But then I did some experimenting where like, it worked so well that I basically was paying for clicks on retweets from my own followers mm -hmm. on that sponsored ad, and, and and I thought, like that's pretty stupid because I had a friend of mine who had hundreds of thousands of followers retweet it, and then I'm paying for those clicks. So then I thought, all right, so all this stuff I learned, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, put a, a low budget on it, and turns out that like. Based on that sort of community knowledge, I, I'm now driving two cent clicks from from Twitter ads, but two cent clicks from some of the most valuable people in the world. These are these are marketers that control budgets. You know, if you take you know marketer, the money that marketers spend collectively are off off the charts compared to probably any other group. And I'm acquiring them to the site for two cents a piece through this channel. But I didn't figure that all out on my own. I I shared it, and in sharing it, some people shared some ideas back to me, and that, and that, you know, and then now I've posted the same stuff back on Growth Hackers, and I've got other people trying it. But just this idea that if, you know, I think that there's probably a subset of really experienced growth hackers that that probably don't want to be a part of the community because they don't want to share their best stuff, and they feel like they might be above it. Mm -hmm. um, but the truth is that I'll take I'll take a hundred. 
next level down growth hackers who combine their pool of experiments and learning mm -hmm. with mine to exchange and share that information, our, our collective learning will be so much faster, so much better through that sharing. And yeah, we're going to saturate channels, but the fact is those channels are going to get saturated anyway, mm -hmm. but we're, we're going to be the ones to saturate it rather than, you know, it, it helps us get in there first. And so to me, to me, that's really kind of where growth hackers is going is that it, it fills this void. Um, but it's also owned by Qualaroo. Mm -hmm. So the other angle to it was looking at the marketing tools businesses like HubSpot, like Kissmetrics, like Marketo, um, are massive content marketing companies. Yep. They, that is their primary engine of growth. And they probably put more recess, resources into content creation than media companies do, mm -hmm. or at least as much resources into content creation as media companies do. And I thought, that sounds like a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't want to have to organize and manage all of that content creation. Mm -hmm. I want to step back and say, if I'm going to be a media company, I'm going to put the effort of a media company, I should be a media company. I should think about how would I approach this if from day one I wanted to be a media company to fill the void that I had spotted. And, um, and so that's, that was the other thing is like to invest in the platform and think through it in terms of like why should it be a cost center? It can actually be a profit center in itself. And so ultimately long term, if somebody else wants to pay for advertising against the user base that's there and I can do it in a way that's not too disruptive to the overall experience and their ad is worth more to them than a Qualaroo ad would be on there, mm -hmm. then I'll take a third party ad. You know that, that like we have to compete for access to that group just like anyone else, but ultimately Ultimately, there's more money coming to us, and it's anyway. So, it, 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 to me, we are. If you take the unique users of the top marketing products that are out there, that have been out there for many years, we're we're already at seventy five percent of the of the monthly monthly uniques. Wow! And and we've only been out there for nine weeks. Mm -hmm. So, and, and we've got so much stuff up our sleeves that I mean that this. This week's growth, we launched a few things this week that literally put it um, like 100% growth over last week. Wow. Uh, it's not to say that that's necessarily sustainable. There's, there's some, some luck pieces. There's some of this Twitter stuff that I'm doing right now. But mm -hmm. my, my Twitter budget on growing that is, is $25 a day. So it's not like I'm spending big, big bucks to grow the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you bring up that Twitter, that Twitter hack. So I actually looked at the other day. I was like, I'm going to try this for one of, one of my products, right? And uh -huh. like, I think the key here is like, okay, it didn't, it's not working out for me initially, but I know it's going to work. I just need to make adjustments. So I think for the audience, like you, just cause you see a hack and it's not working initially, you need to test to, to see if it's going to work. Cause you know, there's, there's, there's always variables that you can be switching up to, you know, make it work for two cents or so. Um, and, I, and I think it's, it's trying to understand the, 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 the media, like try, I think entrepreneurs and growth hackers are very similar in mentality and, and that it's, it's about um, spotting opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so looking a little bit more holistically at the product, not just my goals and my ads mm -hmm. or even my goals and my ads and my target users, but, but the property itself. I mean, the way that I think of using Twitter is not a Twitter ad is not to buy audience because yep. that's, that's, that's expensive. I'm thinking of it as to seed great content and to get, get the ball rolling on great content. And then, then I know that if I can, if I can get that going and I can 
kick off that Virelli. And so that's why my budget is $25 a day. The first day that I ran the, the Twitter ad, I got zero retweets. Mm -hmm. And I could have easily given up on it. But I've been running it now for eight days, and it's had 152 retweets now. And you know, it, just, it takes one retweet for someone who's got a million followers to, to really kick that stuff off. And that, wow. so each, what I haven't posted the update on that is that each day, the number of tweets or the number of clicks that I'm getting for my, for my $25 has actually grown by about 200 since I did that. Wow. So I'm now up to, I'm now up to, I think yesterday I did 1,680 clicks on, on my $25. Well, well, you know what I'm doing right after this interview. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, the interesting thing about growthhackers.com is um, when it first came out, I was like, you know, what's the difference between inbound? You know, there's some stuff on Hacker News. There's some other communities, too. So what are the key differences between those other groups? Um, again, like growth, growth hackers is focused. I mean, that's, that's the idea of what a growth hacker is. It's focused on everything that has a direct impact on growth. And so inbound is... Inbound is more narrow than that. It, there's just a set of you know SEO stuff and content marketing, but you know, API opportunities, viral opportunities. There, there's like a lot of things that aren't going to fall within inbound. So I think that's the that's the reason why I like inbound wasn't meeting my need. Mm -hmm. and there were certain things like I, I like inbound a lot, and I, I go there quite a bit. But I, I go there for my inbound learning, not for my not for my overall growth learning. Um, and then Hacker News is is way broader. There's a whole bunch of stuff. Like I don't have I don't have time to read all of the growth hacker articles right now. If I have to pick and choose the growth hacker articles out of that that stream, I just it's just overwhelming. I'm trying to trying to run a company. I'm trying to do trying to be a good dad. I'm trying, you know, there's just, there's just not enough hours in the day for me to do everything. And so, um, I mean, the interesting thing that's happened with GrowthHackers.com as well that I hadn't really anticipated as much is that it's actually become a great platform for people to build reputation within the community. Mm -hmm. And so, I. Like I said, for the first 10 years, despite a really good track record, nobody knew who I was because, because I didn't care if they knew who I was. You know, I, just wasn't, I was just focused on being good at what I was doing. But, the, um, but once I started sharing, like I had to blog to an empty audience for a year before, before I got a little bit of validation that the, that, that the stuff I was writing was interesting for people. Then when I started doing advising, and people started saying, hey, I really need someone to help us build some awareness for my product. Mm -hmm. Awareness for your product? Really? You're going you're to go compete out there with Budweiser and their $80 zillion budget and you're, you're $650 and you think you're going to buy some awareness? You know, like, typical typical, typical yeah. entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, like this, you know, you don't need to buy awareness. What you need to buy is... Some or what you what you need to do is get some people using your product and and get people experiencing it. And if that experience is good, they're going to tell other people. And so, what you need to do is focus on customer acquisition. You don't need to focus on awareness. And mm -hmm. and so, like that was one of my early popular blog posts. Like awareness building is a waste of time for startups. Mm -hmm. You know, and 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 but I think part of the challenge was I didn't know I didn't know what were my unique thoughts until I engaged externally with a bunch of founders and entrepreneurs and I, I could, could basically 
I could basically see like, wow, I see this very differently. And it's almost a passive aggressive thing to, uh, to start blogging. But suddenly my blog post became a lot more interesting when I saw what I firmly believed and it was sort of different than maybe some of the common beliefs that were out there. What so, is your blog, by the way, just so the audience knows? It's, it's an uh, amazing start, blog. Yeah, thanks. It's startupmarketing.com, startup-marketing.com. Um, I, like, I, I don't blog very much anymore for exactly the reason that I was saying. As soon as I became a founder, I stopped having those interactions with with others that I was doing when I was an advisor and that those those interactions were a great stimulus for being able to uh, come up with blog posts but, um, but yeah I kind of I kind of average like two a year now <laughs> since since then. I mean I started doing more more blogging on external publications but, yeah, uh, but it's working I mean I look at when I look at growthhackers.com there, there definitely is differentiation when I I mean, you know, the the post that you guys write on Uber's growth, Snapchat's growth, it really sets you guys apart from like the other communities that I look at. And you're right, it, it's when I want to look for things that are growth related, that's the place I want to go to. So, um, thanks for explaining that. Um, well, yeah, I actually left that piece out. Is that the the only other thing? Yeah, the original content that we're writing on there was was something that I've always found my best inspiration from studying how other companies are growing. So. For example, we just did the Upworthy breakdown this past week, and uh, the number of ideas that I got from doing that Upworthy breakdown, and I wasn't the primary writer on that, I just did a little editing, but the number of ideas that I got from that Upworthy breakdown for some very specific things that we can do to grow growthhackers.com. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, but it's, I think what you have to do is that a lot of people are sort of looking for formulaic things that they can copy. Mm -hmm. And it's and and you can't do that. You you have to by by understanding the growth of how other companies are growing. You you learn the principles of growth, and you learn some things, and then you have to think about what's unique about my situation. How can I borrow from a couple of these and combine them in some ways? And uh, like for example, Upworthy is all about growing on the back of of uh, Facebook. But I surveyed the GrowthHackers.com people recently, mm -hmm. and. Only three percent said that they would share growth content on Facebook, where seventy-nine percent said their primary place where they would share growth content was on Twitter. Yeah. So, like, I, there's there's a different strategy around Twitter. But so then I could look at how is how is Upworthy, you know, what when Upworthy does use Twitter, how is it using it, and how is how how effective is that, and what can I learn from that? And there's there's a section of the site that'll that'll come out within the next within the next sort of like two or three weeks that I think will take it to a million uniques a month, like relatively quickly. Um, maybe I'm maybe I'm being over optimistic, which often happens. But hey, shoot high, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't get there without without uh, having big expectations. So, wow. um, how many uniques is it doing right now for month? Uh, we're a little over fifty. Okay, fifty thousand. Nice. Okay, well that, that's it's only been nine weeks. That's insane. Um, yeah. I'm, like nine hundred dollars spent. Yeah, um, <laughs> for one of the hardest targeted markets to acquire. So. Yeah, that, that's it's really quality traffic too. Um, so two more questions from my end. Um, so you know you probably heard this question a ton. So let's say I'm a fresh college grad. You know, obviously all the crap I learned in, in, in college for marketing doesn't it's not really relevant, right? But how does a fresh college grad become a growth hacker? Um. So I mean, it was funny. I was kind of thinking to myself today, like, are growth hackers born or are growth hackers created? Um, so, so one, I do think that there is there is some sort of some people 
don't sort of have the, the, the makeup for it. So, so ultimately, creative problem solver is sort of at the, at, at the essence what, what it takes to be a good growth hacker. So like creative problem solving from like how do I get Twitter ads to work for me is part of creative problem solving. How do I, how do I connect this great solution with this audience that doesn't know about it? How do I, you know, just all these different creative uh, problems solving. So that, that would be the starting point. It's just that to one sort of each for each college graduate to understand what their strengths are and make sure that they're playing into those strengths. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it can still be part of a growth team. So that's, that's, that's part of the mm -hmm. transition that I, I see things happening. Yeah. I, I met with, uh, Upworthy's uh, head of products um, uh, right after we wrote our second part of our article. Mm -hmm. um, it happens to be based in Southern California, and so he came and had coffee with the with Morgan Brown and myself. Mm -hmm. And he, it was really interesting when he described the culture at Upworthy, very similar to the culture at Dropbox. And you would think like one's media, one's software, yeah. like you'd think they'd be very different. But it's basically what I see in both those companies is that. Nobody has primary responsibility for growth. And maybe Dropbox does now. I haven't been there for a long time. Mm -hmm. But everybody understands the role they play in growth, and everybody's passionate about the role that they play in growth. And when you have an entire company that's, that's sort of focused on how, they, how each person can drive growth and they're passionate about getting their solution in the hands of that target customer, that's super powerful. And, and that's, that's, to me, I think the next phase is where where it becomes this sort of, there's the growth organization rather than the, the growth person. And so there's growth person, growth team, growth organization. Yeah. And, um, and so what's great within that growth organization, then, then that means that that aspiring growth hacker can, can be really good at any of the functions where they can contribute to growth. So like for me, that's, 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 I, I just think you have to find out what like you're passionate about and what your what you're good at mm -hmm. and you need to really align yourself in a role that that taps into those things mm -hmm. otherwise you'll burn out for one thing if you're not passionate about it and if you're not good at it you you're not going to be very successful yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, but uh, but then what I would do too though is is just holistically understand the science of growth and that's where I think growthhackers.com for me that's why I think it can be bigger than marketing publications because because ultimately ultimately there's something to learn on there for, for, for just about everybody mm -hmm. and and that the, the the growth is really this kind of this this physics of growth there's a science of growth and then there's a creativity of how do you tap into that but that's that's what I love about these growth articles that they're really long and they're dense with a lot of information and some people you know we, a lot of people give up a quarter of the way in and stop reading them. But for somebody who's passionate about this stuff, when you when you can get in there and study each of the elements of what's driving Uber's growth in a, in a way that like we, we did one on Belly, uh, where the, the idea is that Belly or like any of these companies are not going to share how they're growing, mm -hmm. but you can't grow in secret. You, get, it's, you can reverse engineer anybody's growth if you get enough people sort of connecting those touch points. Mm -hmm. And so we basically, we study all the information that we can find about, about this, piece it together, and then brainstorm based on this, how would we try to grow this company? What, you know, and what proof do we have? Some, are they doing this? Are they doing this? And then we write the article around that. And so we did that with, with Bellycard and, uh, and they're, they're a little less known, but they're out of Chicago. They're actually doing really well. And 
the CEO ended up tweeting to us, I went around the office to figure out who, who talked to you guys without clearing it with me. There's no way you guys figured this out on your own, but, um, wow. but it's, it's not that hard to figure it out yeah. when, when you connect the dots that way. So, and then we did the same thing with Square, and Square had been really secretive about how they were growing. Uh -huh. But uh, at the recent Growth Hackers Conference uh, in, in Northern California, the guy who was responsible for gr growing Square for a long time actually presented all the details on how they did it and we were we were really excited basically oh man we nailed that we nailed that okay we missed this piece I think we missed some of the some of the kind of community element but mm -hmm. we got we got all the top pieces by by just I mean and one of the guys on my team did try to did try very hard to connect with uh, with with the square team and did, did you know try, try to get some human intelligence in the process as well but um, it's just really fun kind of kind of reverse engineering and exposing and then opening to the community to discuss it even more and contribute their observations and um, you know I think so I think that there's there's a bunch of really rich original information that we can add there yeah no it's it's hugely I mean there's a there's impact for anyone if you can just read it and there's one or two takeaways you could take it and modify the idea to whatever your business is it totally works out and you know I've used a lot of that stuff so you know keep it up um, <laughs> final question for you um, what's one must-read book uh, that you recommend to people and why? Um, if I could only read one book, I'd probably say Cialdini Influence. Um, it's it, people are not always it's it's not always obvious how people react to certain things, and when you can when you can understand how people how people react to to, to certain things, you like that's that's a huge part of just the, marketing is psychology to a large degree like just tapping into how do you peak interest how do you maintain engagement how do you how do you drive action and and like i think one of the big developments that you're going to see over the next few years is going to be a lot of the brain science on those things mm -hmm. that that really you you haven't seen that much published around it but i think cialdini is probably any of the behavior economics kind of books is is a good part of it, but I think Cialdini nailed it more than anybody in his in his book Influence. Got it. Yeah, really powerful book. I've read it like two or three times already. It's it's one of those evergreen books. Um, but Sean, you know, thanks so much for doing this. Obviously, you're a very busy CEO. Everyone, uh, this is Sean Ellis, uh, Godfather of the term growth actor. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it.